Good morning. Uh, fun to be here. This is risky. It's risky to have me here today on November 18th, our fall meeting when we're voting Gerald in. Uh, I mean, when we vote on Gerald. Um, it's risky on Gerald's part. If this goes bad, we're going to question his judgment. If this goes good, I don't know if there's a write-in ballot part, but... J-O-N-A-T-H-O-N, and then Gorney has no E in it. So, um, you know, just risky on his part. Um, let me do this. Before I get started, let me pray, and then we'll dive in together uh, into God's Word and into uh, our Sunday together. Let me pray. Father, I ask that whatever you have to say, you would say it. Father, I thank you for the privilege that it is to gather as a body of people Lord, I pray for the privilege to stand on a stage and represent you. Father, I'm not worthy of that. Father, we know that your glory exists when people gather and are united and look at your word together. And so, Father, we pray for that today. Pray that we would all be moved in that way. We trust you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I've been working with Young Life uh, for the past 12 years. My wife and I moved here from Ohio. And for 10 years, I worked in the Riverside-Brookfield area, uh, kind of getting ministry going there as the area director. And then about a year and a half ago, I switched into a different role of development. And that's a lot of you guys. Uh, I am a real person. I know you've seen videos of me for the past three days and didn't know if I existed. Uh, but that's what I've been doing for the past 12 years. Before that, I was a volunteer Young Life leader in Toledo, Ohio, at an inner city school in Toledo called Bowser High School. And before that... I was a freshman in high school that came to know the Lord through the, the saving grace of a young life leader who spent a lot of time with me. I was, uh, the high school I went to, it wasn't a particularly unique high school. It was most suburban high schools uh, that, that most kids go to. But I grew up in a situation that, uh, for better or worse, and it was nobody's fault, but I was, I was a little bit embarrassed of where I grew up. And I played uh, a sport that wasn't necessarily the most reputable sport. I played soccer. Um, sorry for you soccer fans. Johnny, I apologize. Um, but I, I remember being from this town that I wasn't necessarily proud of and playing this sport that not many people really cared for. And every Thursday night, I would play soccer. I was on the soccer team, and there was a guy that would show up every Thursday. And he would be, he knew all of our names. And I didn't know how he knew our names because we had like no rosters printed or anything like that. But he would scream all of our names all Thursday long. Like all night long during the games, he'd be screaming our name, which was completely unnecessary. Like I don't know if you've ever been to a freshman soccer game, but like you could speak about, uh, above a loud whisper and it would suffice. Like we could hear everything, right? But he would yell for us the whole time. And after the game, he would hang out and he would talk to him. And it seemed like everybody knew who he was. And I didn't totally know who he was. And so I asked one day, somebody said, hey, who is that guy that's always at our games? What's, what's his deal? And someone said, oh, that's Chris. He's a Young Life leader. I said, what is Young Life? I'm like, oh, you got to come. You got to come. And I just, I don't know why, but I wasn't into it. And Chris could sense that. And so Chris kept saying to me, hey, let's get together. What, what are you doing on Tuesdays? He always talked to me about Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I didn't know it at the time, but Chris was a college student. And he had Tuesdays and Thursdays off. And he chose to spend his Tuesdays and Thursdays with my friends and I. And so on Thursdays, he would come to our soccer games, 
But on Tuesday, he kept wanting to hang out with me. Well, on Tuesdays, I delivered a paper route. And it wasn't something I was particularly proud about. I would do it at night. I would ride my bike around uh, at night on my paper route. And it was always, it, it was a job, yes, and I held it for a long time. But it was to some degree, if I'm honest, it was a sense of embarrassment that I had to have a paper out because I was trying to uh, make money for myself. And so Chris uh, kept saying to me, what are you doing on Tuesday? Come on, let's hang out on Tuesday. Let's do something on Tuesday. And I just kept saying, I work, I work, I can't, I can't. And so eventually he said, what is it you do as a 14-year-old? And uh, I didn't want to be honest. I said, I just, yeah, I got a job. And uh, he could sense that. Chris had this way about him. He could sense that something was going on. And so Chris uh, grabbed me one time, pulled me aside, and he said, what is it you do on Tuesdays? I said, well, I deliver catalogs, uh, this, this kind of shopping paper to people for them to shop, you know, buy things. And he said, that's interesting. I said, no, it's not. It's a paper out. <laughs> it's, it's nobody's goal. And he said, could you do that faster with a car? And I said, well, yeah, probably. I'm 14, but I don't have a car. I don't have a license. And he goes, great, great. I'll see you Tuesday night. And I didn't know how to respond to that. Because I knew what was going to happen was Chris was going to show up in my life. And he was going to show up at the parts of my life that I didn't want him to see. And he would have to drive into my neighborhood and see my house. And again, my neighborhood and my house were not really that embarrassing. There, there was no sense of embarrassment, but I, I embodied that for some reason. And so Chris, sure enough, Tuesday night, pulls up into my driveway in his 1995 red Honda Accord, and he gets out, and I'm like, here we go. And he walks to the door, and he said, this is awesome. Are you ready to get to work? And I'm like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Got in Chris's car, and we drove around and delivered my paper out for two hours that night. And for the next four years, every Tuesday, Chris showed up at my house. And I'd get inside of his red Honda Accord, and we'd drive around, and he would tell me about Jesus. I have no idea what he says. To this day, I've asked him, I said, do you remember anything we talked about in the car? And he's like, no clue. I'm like, great. Cool, that's helpful. Um, but it was his presence. It was his unashamed support of me in my shame. He didn't judge me. He didn't care about what I did. He wanted to be engaged in my life. He showed up at a soccer field when very few people were there. He showed up to help deliver my paper out when nobody else wanted to. When I felt shame, he said, there's no reason to have shame. And he was living out this Jesus that he was talking about. See, that's what Young Life is. Young Life is leaders and it's kids. It's a Honda Accord and it's a paper route. But that doesn't translate well to a bumper sticker. <laughs> if you don't know Young Life and you're like, for some reason, my kid to be involved, they have to have a paper out. They don't. Um, but the essence of what it is, is it's relational ministry. We do three things in Young Life. We do them really well. The first thing is we go to where people are. It's kind of part of our DNA. It's the way Young Life started back in 1939. A young youth pastor was hired at a church, and the head pastor of that church saw this growing divide between the, the kids that were coming to the church and the kids were that were at the high school across the street. Less and less high school kids were coming to the church. 
And so the guy's name was Jim, and Jim on his first day of work showed up, and he's ready, and he's you know, going to get his office and figure out how to like, start connecting with the kids in the church. And the head pastor puts his arm around him, and he says, hey, Jimmy, listen, um, you, see that, you see that building over there, and the high school was directly across the street from the church. And he goes, here's the deal. That's your office. Go there. I'll take care of everybody that comes in here, but who's going to tell the kids that would never step foot in here about Jesus? And Young Life was born. 1939. We go to where people are. We don't wait for them to come to us. The second thing we are is we are relational to a fault without strings attached. Everything that we do is relationally driven. It's not program driven. We don't have necessarily, people have asked me now over time and said, could you send me like your guys' tracks or whatever it is you guys do? I'm like, nothing. Like go to Chick-fil-A on Wednesday. You'll see Young Life happening, promise. We don't have anything like that. We have relationships. It's who we are to our core. We go to where people are. We develop relationships without strings attached. When I was a volunteer leader in Toledo, I would go to the lunchroom every Thursday. And every Thursday, I'm sorry, once a month on Thursdays, they would have the military sign-up table. And you would know what those people wanted from you based on their dress, right? You would walk in and you would immediately see them in their, their military uniforms and you would know they want to talk to me about signing up for their agenda, And so we made it a mandate in Young Life that if you're going to go hang out with kids, do not wear Young Life gear. Because this is about them and it's about the relationship that you have. This is not about the agenda. Their presence at a weekly meeting does not matter. We develop relationships with no strings attached. One of the adages that we live by is that um, you belong regardless of what you believe. We're not going to force our doctrine on you. We are going to invite you to engage in on the Christian doctrine, on the gospel. But we are not going to force this on you. And if you walk away from this, we're not walking away from our friendship. I still have students over the years that I, um, one just had uh, kids and he texts me. He's not following the Lord. But in this moment of joy with his life, he's 26 now, he's, he decided to send me a text to say, hey, praise God. He didn't say praise God. <laughs> this is awesome. I have two kids. And I said, praise God. He rolled his eyes. Uh, <laughs> we don't walk away from kids. And the last thing we do is we give Jesus to kids in any way possible. You heard Silvana talking about it in the video, that we earn this right with kids, we build this relationship with students, and then when the Lord would open the door, we give them Jesus. Sometimes that means we very clearly just sit across from them, and we open up our Bible, and we say, we need to read this to you, and you need to hear this. Sometimes it's picking up kids in the middle of messes. Young life leaders often get calls or text messages late at night. Because kids know this person cares about me and they offer something more than maybe social media can. Okay, I'm going to reach out to that person. We go to where kids are, we develop relationships with no strings attached, and we give them Jesus. It's a pretty simple ministry. It's not profound in any way. It's actually just biblical. It's how we see Jesus living the gospel out. It's incarnational. It's not... um, It's not a bait and switch. It's very much real, not pragmatic. And I'm really excited today, kind of in this this spirit of grow the vision, to yes, grow the vision for the church and to bridge the gap and to help Morton Young Life get going, but grow the vision us, Calvary, of how we see missions, how we view our role in the gospel. I'm excited for that. But if I'm honest, 
in my excitement, I also have concerns. I have concerns about us individually as people, us as the body of Calvary, and us as the church at large as it comes to missions. I want to address three of those, those concerns that I have, and I don't, here's what I want to say. If we're going to grow, we first have to deconstruct what stands in the way of our growth. And I want to address some things, some things that I've observed, but I don't want you to disengage. I don't want you to sit back and go, hey, he's not talking to me. No, I am. I'm talking to all of us and myself included. Three concerns that I have as, as we talk about really growing the vision or growing this missional mind. A lot of these are birthed out of conversations that I've had within this church. And none of them are egregious in their own right. But they're comments or questions that have been said to me as a missionary of Calvary that I think reveal or get to something deeper that exists that maybe has us kind of off a little bit in our view of missions. A lot of times when people talk to me about what I do with Young Life, they say, oh, that's awesome. That's not, that, I can't do that. That's not for me. That's not for me. And I, I understand what we're saying. I understand the idea of like vocational ministry is not for everybody. But you cannot be unified with God and disconnected from his mission. It's just not a part of the game. When we say that it's not for me, I wonder what's behind that. I wonder if it's comfort. I wonder if it's insecurity or safety. I'm not talking about everybody needing to be an extrovert. My wife's an introvert. She still does really good relational ministry. If we seek comfort, are we no more than just turning God into a therapeutic deity? If we're unwilling to let God push us into uncomfortable places as it pertains to living our lives for him, is he really God? It's a concern I have for myself at times. Do I seek comfort more? Second comment that's often said to me, um, and it's said in the most generous and, 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 and kind way, but people will say to me, oh, your job must be so rewarding. And I get what they're saying. I get the encouragement that comes with my job and seeing the Lord move and, and, and communities really coming to know the Lord. And there's a trickle-up effect that when kids come to know the Lord, the parents' lives are impacted, absolutely. And I get to help usher them into the kingdom. But I think when we say something must be rewarding, I wonder if we realize that it's, it's very real to do the work of God, but yet miss God in the midst of all of it. See, that's what's difficult about missions. Missions is something we do. It's something we embody. It's not a cognitive thought that just rests in our mind or something that warms our heart. Mission is something we do, and very easily we can confuse things we do with spiritual vitality. Jesus didn't shy away from that. He jumped right at it in Matthew 7, right? He says, oh man, there's gonna be a lot of people that knock on that door. I'm gonna say, I don't know who you are. And they'll say this. They'll say, no, 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 we prophesied in your name. Do you know what prophesying, prophesying is? That's a sign of biblical missionary work. We did work in your name. And he's gonna say, no, but you missed it. You missed it. Is there rewards from it? Does it make you, you know, does it, does it encourage you in the Lord? Yes. But if missions is a mean to our spiritual vitality, we've missed it. And lastly, 
And this, and, and this is, quite honestly, the most difficult of, of conversations I, I have with people. And someone will ask me, how do you handle always being on? As if there's an off. If we see missions as an on and off, have we failed our own spiritual congruency with the Lord? On and off, what that creates, Gerald highlighted this a couple weeks ago, an on and off vision of ministry creates toleration, not unification. We simply tolerate people. We don't seek to be unified. Becomes pragmatic solving, as if that all missions is, is we just have to solve a problem for somebody. It's not soulful connection. And what's most difficult about this Studies have shown that it's most often done by white, affluent people that look like me. And it's done towards communities of color. And so then it continues to exacerbate this idea of a national narrative of the haves and the have-nots, and the betters and the worses. At its best, this line of thinking turns people into problems needing fixed. At its worst, it's perpetuating a national narrative, and it can become subliminal racism. That we as the body of Christ would create systems that ostracize one culture over another. These are concerns I have. But a critical eye only gets us so far. I... Um, a brother, I have two older brothers. My middle brother, Josh, was a junior in high school, and he was in physics class. And my brother's best friend, Josh, his name was Jay, and Jay did not like the physics teacher. It, it wasn't that he didn't like him. He thought he was inefficient at his job. He thought he was a bad teacher. And so Jay, uh, being who Jay is, would constantly make little small remarks towards the teachers he would be at the board writing. But he wasn't making them quietly so that nobody would hear it. He was saying it loud enough so that the teacher would know that Jay is annoyed right now, right? And it was a physics class. And this one time, Jay said something, and the teacher turned around. And the teacher had a little bit of a temper. Uh, and he walked over to Jay's table, and he slammed the chalk down. And he said, you teach the class. And he sat in the seat. <laughs> and Jay, um, this is who Jay is as a person, is like, oh, I got this. Grabs the chalk, walks up to the chalkboard, and begins to try and teach physics. But he actually doesn't really know it that well. And the teacher starts heckling him. <laughs> what about the seven? You forgot about gravity. You know, and he's yelling at him. And what Jay quickly discovered was that it's really easy to critique. It's really easy to deconstruct. But boy, does it take a lot of guts to recognize when something's wrong, or maybe when something's off a little bit, and lean into it. My hope today is not that I would deconstruct and, and sit at us and say, what are we doing? Maybe, maybe we do need to do that a little bit. But we also need to reconstruct. We need to recalibrate who we are as a people on who Jesus was in the Bible. At some point, 
We need our vision of missions to match the vision of missions in the Bible. So to do that, I do want to look at the text. I want to look at the, you know, one of the first missionaries in the Bible. We're not going to get knee deep in, in all of the theology of the story. There's a lot there. But I want to look at this story of the woman at the well, and I want to say to us as Calvary and us as individuals, what do we see Jesus doing in this story, and how can we embody this? But I say this, and there's a tension that we have to recognize, that as we live missional lives, we are wounded healers. We speak of a God, we tell people of a hope of Christ that we ourselves really need. So please, let's not miss ourselves in this text. Let's ourselves be moved by this text because we recognize who we are in it and we recognize who Christ is in it. That is my hope is that we'd recalibrate on this story. So let me, let's dive in here. If you have your Bible, go to John 4 if it's still open. Grace, thanks for reading it earlier. Uh, little context, Jesus and his uh, disciples are walking and they're traveling. They're, they're going kind of from a southern part of the, of the country to the northern part, and they choose to go through Samaria. And if you know nothing, I'll simplify it, and I'll get an email later. That's okay. Um, just, we'll say this. Samaria is the part of the city that you don't want to go to. Okay? It's the part of town that people from Jesus's culture, the Jewish culture, they just don't want to necessarily travel through there. Uh, not because they're afraid, but it's because it's seen as less than. That's the part of the community that we don't want to go to. But it's actually kind of to navigate where they're going. They want to go through there. I would say that I think the Lord had bigger plans. So when the Bible says they had to go through Samaria, you might look at a map and you go, no, they didn't, right? But the Lord said they had to, so they did. Let's dive in here. They had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, around noon. You can envision this, right? Like it's a long traveling day. Jesus gets to a point. He finds the well, like the well is a social gathering, and he sits down, and he's like, hey, fellas, here's the credit card. Go grab us some food. I'm going to hang out here. I'm a little bit tired, right? And so then the, the guys walk away. Now, if you juxtapose this, juxtapose this to the feeding of the 5,000, where, where the disciples said, hey, do you want us to go buy food? And he goes, no, 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 you give them food. It's weird. It gets funny. Jesus isn't predictable. You don't know what's happening with him. But he says this, go buy us food. Weary as he was, he sat beside the well. It was about noon. Then a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, would you give me a drink? There's a lot there to understand. There's a lot there to the time of the day. Noon was not a time when people traveled to wells. Wells were sought in the morning or in the evening when it was cooler or when you needed water for the full day or for the next morning. You didn't go at noon. If you were going at noon, you were trying to avoid something or someone. Okay, the fact that Jesus, the text will reveal it in a second, the, text, the, the fact that Jesus is speaking to a woman crosses so many barriers. I hope we're getting a picture of a Jesus who isn't intimidated by gender stereotypes. He just is not that concerned. He says, no, 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 I'll, I'll, I'm talking with you. And he's not concerned about what part of town she's from or what race she might be. 
She's from, a, she's from seen as a less than person. And Jesus quickly engages her and asks her for water, which ceremonially would be an unclean act. He would receive this from her and they would see Samaritans as unclean and he would receive it and then he would drink it and then he himself would be unclean. That's how all of this was envisioned. There's weight to her story. Could you give me a drink? The Samaritan said to him, and, and she gets it. She said, ah, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. You know, it's been my experience. My experience is when people from um, a culture that is seen as less than, sometimes they start to believe the lies that others say about them. And they start to live into those lies. And so here this woman sees herself as not worthy to have an interaction like this with this person. I'm not, you don't understand who I am. The reality is Jesus fully understands who she is. She don't understand who he is. He says, no, no, I know. I know who you are. She believes the lies that others have told about her. Jesus answered her, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See, before, up until this point, Jesus hasn't been really um, upfront about who he is or what he provides. Now, he said some things and he's kind of talked passively about who he is. But here in this intimate moment with this woman, he's saying, hey, I want to tell you who I am. I offer something more than you have. See, you show up every day here to this well, and I know by what time it is why you show up here. And you show up here looking for something that ultimately you will not find. See, when we treat missions as a problem solve, a problem solve kind of on off switch, that's what we do. We just say, well, she needs water. We'll just get her some water. We'll be on our way. Now, that's not what missions is. And Jesus knows that. So he's engaging her on this need, but he's saying, no, no, this, there's something more here. He says this to her, and then she responds, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He's the one who gave us this well. He drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She responds pragmatically. Have you ever had moments where you've said to somebody like, hey, I know you have this problem that's going on. I have, maybe I have something to say about that that could help you. And they give you all the reasons it won't work. Now, sometimes that's what mission is. And you don't leave those people. You don't get frustrated. You stay right there with them. She says, you don't even have a bucket. Your ways don't work. I know how to get water. Water is becoming a symbolic part of this story. She thinks they're talking about water. Jesus is talking about himself. Then she responds historically. This is how we've always done it. Jacob did it. His sons. This is his well. This is how we've always done it. Your way doesn't work and this is how we've always done it. Maybe in that, we as a body need to hear some stuff. 
Maybe the way we've always done missions isn't working. Maybe the way we've viewed missions as like, this is something for vocational missionaries, but not necessarily for me. Maybe we need to leave that behind. That maybe is at one time how missions was seen. It can't be how it's seen. It needs to be embodied and lived. Jesus responds to her. He's patient, man. He's more patient than I am. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's right. He's right. He gives her the absolute truth. But I don't think he did it with attitude or anger. I think he just pointed to the reality that what she was doing was not going to solve what she was after. The reality is water is not the answer for thirst. Water just delays thirst. It always comes back. The answer for missions is not simply us starting a new club or hiring a new pastor, but it's a group of people embodying the gospel within their local communities. Whoever drinks of this water I give will never be thirsty. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is going all out. He's like, come on, you got to know who I am. (laughs) But she doesn't get it. She doesn't get it. She's like, okay, great. Give me that water. Like, wait, do you have a hose or something? How, How do I go about getting this? And then Jesus really moves in, in relationships. He responds to her, go call your husband. That's a pointed question. It reveals to us that he knows something about her. See, when you try and offer the hope of Christ to somebody, but you know nothing about them, you don't say, go call your husband. All you do is keep reciting verses, and they keep saying, you don't understand. And it's like, maybe we should understand. Maybe we should sit and listen a little bit more and understand what's going on with our people before we're so quick to rush and solve everything. Go call your husband. And I imagine at this point, the woman is um, uncomfortable because she's known. She's fully known at this moment. She said, I I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had five. And the one you're with right now, he's not your husband. But guess what happens before all that? Before he fully reveals who she is, he reveals who he is. He gives himself to her in the midst of her giving herself to everything else. Jesus says, I am the water that will satisfy you. And I know that you don't want that. You're going after all this over here, but I'm telling you, I'm right here. I think sometimes we switch that. Sometimes we don't offer Jesus until we see somebody's really ready or really, you know, Okay, have you, have you, you came to the church? Okay, now I can talk to you about this? No, no, no. He says, I know who you are. You can come in here. You can come in here. Come on, no strings attached. She goes back and forth. She, she, she starts to get it. She knows Jesus is something. She doesn't quite know what he is. They start to have this debate about worship. Jesus feels like, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. He says to her that the time of worship will come. The woman says, I know the Messiah is coming. 
he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus stops and he says, that's who I am. I'm him. I am him. I wonder how many people are waiting, sitting there saying, I know hope's coming. And they're having these conversations with people who believe in Jesus. And they're saying, I know hope is coming. And me, I know this is true of myself, and I wonder if it's true of some of us. Sometimes I shy away from saying, oh, no, hope's here. It's right here. You don't got to wait any longer. I know the hope. I'm going to give it to you right now. It's Jesus. That's it. I know it's coming. Jesus says, I'm here. Disciples walk back in, into the story at this point, and it's a... Uh, it's probably an awkward moment. I don't know if you've ever walked up to a couple that just had a fight, like they're arguing with each other and you walk in and everything gets silent. <laughs> I don't know what's going on here, right? It's like Jesus and this woman are talking and the disciples walk up and it's like, <laughs> you know, what's going on? The disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? Check out what she does. She is fully known, and Jesus fully offers himself and the hope that he has. And look at what it does to her. After he declares, I am the one you're looking for, it says, the woman left her water jar. She went away into the town, and she said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They went out of town, and they came to meet him. See what she did? She left behind her water bucket. That was her old way of life. She went back to the very people that she was trying to avoid. And she says, I found something real. I found somebody who knows me and doesn't judge me. I bet it's him. Come see. She's the first missionary. There's no program here. She just simply goes back to her town and says, I found something different. And I think this is it. I hear to myself in the midst of this, that is what the Lord says to me every day. Do you have something different? Am I something different to you? If so, what are you waiting for? Go tell somebody. You see the person at the well. You see the person hurting. Just come alongside them. Ask them for a drink of water. Engage in some kind of conversation, a meaningful relationship. And when they tell you that what you offer doesn't work, stay right there with them. And then fully give them Christ when I allow it. Come and see. It's the first call of ministry, of missions, I'm sorry. Come and see. What does come and see look like for us? Some of you are sitting here and, and the introverts in the room are like, I don't know how to have these conversations. <laughs> what does come and see look like? I do want to offer a couple practical things in fear of hanging too much in the abstract. What does come and see look like? Calvary, we're doing it in, a, in kind of three different ways. We have vocational kind of missionaries, right? And that's a way that you can get involved with some of those local missionaries. We have organizations that we've partnered with. And then we as a body have all kinds of stuff accessible to tell people, why don't you come and see? We're, we're coming up on the Advent season. I know four people in my community, in my neighborhood, that I'm like, I, I need to talk to them and invite them to come and see Advent at our church. 
Maybe it's the English Conversation Cafe. Maybe you know people that are trying to understand English a little bit better. Maybe you invite them to that. Maybe that's asking somebody for a drink of water. English Conversation Cafe, 931 Basketball, the back-to-school program, just hanging out. We're not talking about programs. We're talking about relationships. We're not talking about fixes. We're talking about connecting. Where I think we've gone wrong with missions is we've tried to, to schedule it too much. We've tried to make it too cut and dry. It's not. It's messier than that. It's life-on-life connections. What does Come and See look like? I mean, we've highlighted um, Young Life for the past, you know, three weeks. If If you're at all interested in that, get involved in Young Life. We need leaders. We need people to serve on the committee. That's a way that you can kind of get involved in local missions and bring some people into it. Come and see. Story ends like this. Verse 41. People go and see Jesus, and it says this. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. My hope and prayer for us, Calvary, is that we would begin to see our missional identity as people who know the Savior of the world, and that we would invite people to come and see. Let me pray. Father, in all the ways that you would be nudging us inside or the names of the people that might be coming into our heads now, Lord, would you help us to connect with them? Would you help us to just see what they're doing for Thanksgiving? Would you help us to ask them where they come from or what their life was like growing up? Father, would you help us to ask for a cup of water? Father, help us not to be scared or intimidated by any barriers that might exist between us and others. Lord, with your grace and with your hope, may we go to others and we invite them to come and see. Jesus, we trust you. We love you. Pray that as real as you were to this woman, that you'd be that real to us every day, Lord, that you would be the savior of the world. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen.